0: What are the opportunities and risks presented by the changing NCAA rules on athlete endorsements and sponsorships? I'm Ko Yi, a partner in Manette's advertising, marketing, and media practice. And this is Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manette. Before we start, I'd like to tell you about our upcoming mailbag episode. This summer, with the help of my Manette colleagues, I'll be answering listener questions in a special program. Over the course of the past nine episodes, I've loved receiving feedback from listeners. This mailbag episode is my way of saying thank you for all your support. So please don't be shy, head to the survey in our caption and let us know what's on your mind. We'll spend the entire program digging into your questions. For today's episode, my guest is a colleague from the Manat Digital and Technology Group, Matt Rees who is both a consultant and an attorney in the group. Prior to joining Manette earlier this year, Matt was a longtime chief in-house counsel for an NHL club. Matt, thank you for joining me today.
1: Oh, thanks very much for having me. Really excited to be on.
0: College sports is big business, especially for Division I schools, generating hundreds of millions of dollars annually for such schools. And yet, for years, student athletes could not directly benefit financially while playing in college from licensing the use of their name, image, and likeness, commonly known in the industry as NIL rights. There is, however, a paradigm shift occurring right now, where as a result of multiple lawsuits filed by student athletes over the past 15-plus years, more permissive NCAA rules are under consideration, and new legislation in several states are about to go into effect this summer, which would allow college athletes to start reaping financial benefits from exploiting their NIL rights. Matt, you've spent a big chunk of your career in professional sports, and you've been following the development in NCAA NIL rights for some time now. What are the current NCAA rules regarding athlete endorsements and sponsorships and how are they about to change?
1: Thanks, Poe. I I have been following NIL developments and, and there's a lot to keep up with. And it's a very fluid situation that could change overnight in the event of enacted federal legislation or a Supreme Court ruling in Alston versus NCAA, which is a related case that they heard on March 31st. But it's important for our purposes to back up to the beginning and to look at what's driving all of this. And and it's the NCAA amateurism rules, and in particular, student-athlete eligibility to participate in college sports. And for the purposes of our, our discussion today, I'll stick with Division One athletes, not because there isn't real opportunity for NIL compensation in D two and D three or or even other college athletic associations, but just because Division One appears to be the most restrictive and it's where a lot of the attention is being paid at the legislative and the regulatory level. So if Division One opens up, then other divisions are likely to liberalize as well.
0: Before we start talking about what the rules say regarding Division I athletes, I wanted to just ask you about high school athletes. Don't NCAA rules also apply to high school athletes?
1: Well, they don't apply directly to high school athletes, but they do determine a high school athlete's eligibility to become an NCAA participant. So to that extent, if you are in high school, you'll want to comply and make sure that you're eligible to participate in college athletics. So you'll have to pay attention to what the NCAA eligibility rules are in order to get through the gate. And essentially, the NCAA eligibility rules for incoming athletes are that when in high school, an athlete would be able to endorse and promote commercial products but not receive compensation. And in addition, once they actually become a college athlete, at least the rules say that they need to stop once they enter into an NCAA program.
0: Okay, so let's talk about Division I rules, since they're so important for current athletes as well as incoming athletes.
1: Well, to sum up, the NCAA amateurism rules prevent Division I student-athletes from promoting or endorsing a commercial product or service, regardless of whether the student-athlete is compensated or not. So there are several exceptions for promotional activities, provided student-athletes aren't paid, but these aren't for commercial products. This is charitable, this is media activities, national governing body promotions, other specific advertisements. So how the NCAA rules will change and go from you can't endorse a commercial product or service at all to you can license your NIL rights to specifically endorse a commercial product for money, it really remains to be seen where that ends up and what the specifics are. They've been pushed along by developments in state law and by federal bills and various court cases, as well as some influential voices. And the NCAA had to go at drafting proposed changes back in their January meeting, but they tabled those draft rules at that time And the NCAA's Division I Council is reportedly expected to try again at a June 23rd meeting, if feasible, in their words. And whether it's feasible or not will most likely depend upon whether the Supreme Court has made its ruling or a federal bill has actually been enacted.
0: Let's talk about state laws then. I understand that state laws in some of the biggest college sports states like Alabama and Florida are about to change. What's happening at the state level?
1: Well, at the state level, you have 16 states that have enacted laws giving student-athletes the state law right to exploit their name, image, and likeness. Five of those states, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, and New Mexico, will start allowing basically NIL deals as of July 1st of this year. So in a couple of weeks, student-athletes who matriculate to schools in those states- can start signing NIL deals. All told, 39 states have had some form of NIL bill introduced in their state legislatures. So on a broader level, this this has really kind of driven the push toward student-athlete rights to exploit their, their publicity rights, but it's also underlined a real need for a nationwide standard. Because what's going on is if you have a school in Florida in the same conference as a school in North Carolina, for example, uh, that will tilt the scale in recruitment to most likely to a Florida school because of the opportunities that exist for student athletes to earn compensation outside of the athletic program and a scholarship.
0: Well, that's a lot to keep up with. But is there a consistent theme among all these different state laws?
1: Certain consistent themes have emerged, in particular with the five states that are coming online in July. Essentially, it applies and it gives the right to students based upon the location of the school they're matriculating to. So it's not where they live or necessarily where the advertisements or endorsements might reach. They usually contain provisions that both affirmatively create the state law right for NIL compensation, as well as a prohibition on schools from withdrawing eligibility for that reason. And there are a number that use team contracts with athletes essentially to manage what are potential conflicts and special circumstances regarding the school. So either reputational issues or issues of conflict between a student's proposed endorsement and endorsements that a school already has entered into, or maybe in a a product category that the school does not want the athlete to be out endorsing. Also, each of these appear to have prohibitions on schools engaging their own athletes for endorsement purposes. And also importantly, there's no prohibition on agent representation.
0: What are some of the key differences among these state laws?
1: In some cases, they're pretty pronounced. Uh, Georgia, for example, allows the colleges on a case-by-case basis to essentially affirmatively opt in to requiring their athletes to pool their NIL compensation for the benefit of previously enrolled athletes. And in that case, a school could, as a matter of Georgian state law, cause their athletes to pool up to 75% of the NIL compensation that they would be receiving. Chances are, you know, the thinking goes that that's probably not likely to happen because then that would create potential recruiting issues if a student athlete, one Georgia institution has to give up 75% of the NIL revenue and another one does not at a different institution. And then another issue will be it's, it's really unclear as to how courts in each state may differently interpret what look like similar standards. For example, where each state lands on the latitude schools may have in drafting team contracts that have some impact or control on name image likeness rights.
0: Matt, I think you've made a really good case for federal legislation. So let's talk about some of the bills that have been introduced in Congress. Most recently, there was one introduced in the House earlier this year by Representatives Gonzalez and Lever. Could you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, there have been uh, a number of bills and there's been a lot of work and a lot of lobbying and a lot of hearings. And the range of bills have been uh, pretty comprehensive. So it goes from an overall Bill of Rights, like the one that Senator Booker uh, introduced, to more narrow efforts to govern just NIL compensation, like Senator Moran or, or Representatives Gonzalez and Lever. And reportedly, Senator Cantwell and the Senate Commerce Committee are working hard to find compromise on a bill that could potentially pass and preempt state law by July 1st. But it's notable that the new legislation that representatives Gonzalez and Lever have introduced in April has been endorsed by the NCAA. So it'll be interesting to see if that's part of the ultimate compromise. And depending upon what a final bill looks like, it could either change a little or a lot of the currently enacted state laws or state law opportunity to be clear, but also the timing is unclear. Any of these federal laws would seek to preempt state law and establish nationwide standards. And many also contemplate a further evolution in NIL regulation. Many do so by creating some form of new national level commissions to set new rules and enforcement mechanisms over
0: time. And of course, a lot of this could change depending on the results of the Alston versus NCAA Supreme Court case.
1: Yes, in that the Supreme Court heard arguments on March 31st in Austin versus NCAA, which is related but not directly on point with name-image likeness. Essentially, uh, it's on appeal from the Ninth Circuit, which held that certain NCAA limits on athletes receiving compensation in the form of student aid violates antitrust laws. So a ruling either way could be influential in defining the scope of the NCAA's powers in regulating or restricting student-athlete compensation generally, and therefore would have a pretty material impact, potentially, on name-image likeness regulation and enforcement.
0: So what does this all mean for athletes and brands who may want to start working with some of these athletes? Until now, brands have been hesitant to work with student-athletes because of the restrictive NCAA rules. But with the rules changing, it seems to me there's immense opportunity for both brands and athletes.
1: There's a massive opportunity, and it may come from unexpected sources and be a lot broader and deeper than those drafting the legislation and thinking about it actually have really considered. And it really comes together because you have two major elements. You have the rise and maturation of influencer and digital campaigns that are driven by talent-created content. And the second piece is now the ability to tap a massive source of influencer and endorsement talent that hasn't been able to, to be a part of this. So to look to define the opportunity, look to what brands have done In enlisting talent in other areas such as entertainment or what social media personalities and and other influencers have done with the content they create and disseminate online or or on the new streaming platforms, they've essentially transformed what used to be niche ancillary revenue streams into really full-fledged digital businesses. The influencer market is now reportedly in the billions of dollars per year and possibly somewhere around $10 billion, depending upon the source. And the the new pool of talent is extremely broad. The NCAA Division I alone has 173,500 athletes across 346 schools, and the NCAA counts around 460,000 total NCAA athletes at each level.
0: What's so exciting to me is that with the changing eligibility rules and the ability for NCAA athletes to benefit from the exploitation of their NIL rights, money is no longer centered around the big spectator sports like basketball and football. And now NCAA athletes and other sports can benefit from doing deals with brands, which I think is great, both for the athletes who no longer have to choose between playing competitive sports in college and earning money from exploiting their NIL rights, and brands that want to tap into such athletes' marketing potential.
1: Yeah, it's very exciting, and it allows brands to micro-segment by gender, sport, region, urban versus rural, age of different audiences. The appeal and the already demonstrated reach by social media platform followers, it's notably pretty equal in terms of women to men. And I've seen two out of the top Five and five out of the top 10 athletes with the most followers on Instagram are women and in sports like gymnastics and softball. And so, if you just look at the potential based upon social media reach alone, the top athletes, some estimates have shown that those number of followers could mean up to $700,000 per year for those athletes.
0: But with the rules still in flux, what are the risks that both brands and athletes need to be aware of?
1: Well, the biggest risk is making sure that the student athlete maintains his or her eligibility to participate in intercollegiate athletics. That's what they're in school for. That's where they're actually deriving a lot of the value from a branding standpoint as well. And the risk is that you can do a deal that's at least currently okay under state law, but federal law changes and the ground shifts from a regulatory standpoint underneath your feet and imposes additional obligations or preempts uh, the state law standards with national standards that differ. And that basically makes it difficult to fulfill the contract that you've signed as a brand with an athlete. For example, if if federal law is passed that preempts state law and is along the lines of of Representatives Gonzalez and, and Cleaver's bill, brands that have done deals under state law could end up potentially in a prohibited category under federal law, which would require those deals to be amended or, or unwound. And some of the other risks as well, or considerations in each jurisdiction, looking at state as well as federal, is really the extent to which colleges can participate in athlete deals or allow their, their logos to be used.
0: Then how can brands and athletes manage such risks?
1: Well, from the get-go, they can focus on drafting contracts that have a lot of built-in flexibility. We know the laws and rules are going to evolve, and the contract really should either be limited in time or obligations or actually have a provision that specifically addresses the evolution of law and its impact on potential eligibility. So what brands and athletes, when they're doing these deals, should do is is really sit down ahead of time and define the triggers and the process for amending the contract. They shouldn't leave it to force majeure clauses or change in law clauses to address possibly changing regulatory standards. And when you define the trigger, you have to sit down and say, what's a a reasonable concern about the student-athlete's eligibility? When is it reasonable for the student-athlete to be concerned about what obligations might be put on their eligibility and what changes can result with respect to the contract because of that?
0: It's going to be exciting to see how these clauses develop. I negotiate a lot of contracts for brands working with athletes, and I haven't seen this clause yet. So I'm actually looking forward to drafting these clauses.
1: Yeah, it should be interesting. I mean, it's it's kind of a lesson that a lot of folks learned from the last year in dealing with how to go forward post-COVID. And again, not relying on force majeure, but actually determining and trying to define the specific circumstances and impacts on their contract and where ahead of time they're willing to allow it to go from an amendment standpoint.
0: That's a really good point. Yes, we have some good learnings from this past year. Matt, thank you for shedding some light on the evolving landscape of NCAA rules and athlete endorsement opportunities. Before we end this episode, I'd like to ask you for a couple of practice tips for brands considering working with college athletes directly.
1: Yeah, I would say, again, focus on flexibility and making sure that the student athlete is confident that they can maintain their eligibility. I mean, these are important deals, but they're still ancillary to the student athlete being a student athlete. And making sure that both sides, that brands can also have the ability to, depending upon what obligations the shifting regulatory scheme puts on brands and the efficacy of the relationship as things change, make sure that they can call people back to the table too. And also check to see if an agent is representing the athlete because under state law, agents have that ability. And just as a final point, if schools are prevented from licensing their logos for use by student athletes and brands in NIL deals, then everyone will need a crash course in fair use rules under trademark Mm -hmm. law from a practical perspective.
0: Thank you for joining us once again on Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat. And special thanks to Matt for his valuable insights into this really interesting topic. As we discussed in today's episode, as new NCAA rules and state legislation go into effect regarding student-athletes' NIL rights, there will be immense opportunity and also some newfound risks for both brands and athletes. Please visit this episode's caption to access resources related to this episode, as well as a submission form for our upcoming mailbag episode.
1: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat. The views expressed on the podcast reflect the personal views and opinions of the participants and are not intended to constitute legal advice or counsel under any circumstance. Downloading and listening to this recording do not result in the formation of an attorney, client, or other business relationship. You should not act on any information in the podcast without seeking the advice of a competent attorney licensed to practice in your jurisdiction.